Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and joining me today is my guest, Jennifer Strube, the author of a book of poetry called Wild Everything. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, Christina. It's wonderful to be here. I'm so glad you're here. If we could start with having you tell us about yourself, I would love to do that. Sure. So I grew up on a makeshift farm in New Jersey with lots of dogs and cats and horses. And, you know, when I was a little girl, I was always outside. I was the pioneer in my backyard collecting rock samples or charting new paths with my giant stick. I was just enamored with the physical world. And that childhood drive really stuck with me and it, it didn't change it. It perpetuated into my young adult life. And that curiosity led me to a career in education where I could explore ideas and teach children how to ask smart questions about this world. So when I was 22, I launched my teaching career as a New York City teaching fellow in Spanish Harlem, New York. And I spent five years teaching beautiful children um, how to write. And as an English teacher, I started collecting students' stories. And some of those stories were awe-inspiring and brilliant, and others were quite heartbreaking. Um, And so when I turned 30, I, I took a brief break from education and went back to grad school to pursue licensure as a therapist so I could better understand how people tell their story and how we break in and out of the stories handed to us by our families and ultimately how we get to co-create our own life story once we find the power and agency in our lives. So um, by trade, I guess I'm an educator and licensed therapist and you know, at night, I, I'm a writer. I'm a story finder. I, I really believe that life hands us dots that it's our job to connect and try to piece together patterns with. I'm a big believer that in our days are not random events, nor do I see life as scripted from the get-go. I, I think as people, we're, we're given clusters of information and asked to make a constellation from it and, and find meaning or beauty. And I think that desire in me to find those constellations, those dot connections in life and my passion in nature really led me to find poetry as a way to pursue that meaning um, and those connections in life. And you mentioned a minute ago that curiosity is really important to you and that you're an educator. You're also a lifelong learner. You have three master's degrees, is that right? I do. I started collecting them like rocks in my pocket. (laughs) Um, Yeah, my first master's degree is in education. It's from CUNY in New York, and I got that while teaching full-time through the New York City Teaching Fellows Program, and that was a beautiful way to become a teacher. It was like baptism by fire. I you know, taught by day and learned the trade by night uh, with a cohort of other budding intellectuals in New York trying to save the world through education as all starry-eyed 20-year-olds love to do in that field. Um, 
and then from there, you know, as I was collecting stories and listening to my students write, I, you know, kind of tapped into two things. I wanted to deepen my own passion for writing, and I also wanted to develop the craft of teaching writing a little bit better. So I got a second master's at Fordham University in um, literature and creative writing. And as I did that and was <laughs> collecting more stories, I, I realized I, I wanted the psychology lens to inform the narrative and get a more archetypal perspective on, on stories and psyche. So I did a third grad degree in clinical psychology through the Chicago School of Professional Psych. It seems to me that um, psychology and poetry go together really nicely together in, in the self-exploration, in the, the mining of our own stories. There's a wonderful way to put those together in poetry. When did you first become drawn to writing poems? Well, backing up to when I was a little girl again, I remember my mom handed me a Shel Silverstein book, and I was absolutely enamored um, by his work, the fact that he could put sounds together and make them funny or have a story. I remember just sitting in the backseat of my mom's car, reading Where the Sidewalk Ends over and over and over, and I wanted to do that. I wanted to learn how to craft that as a seven-year-old. Um, I feel like I was writing poetry in grade school, but I really honed in on my craft and my creative writing degree at Fordham University. Poetry was my um, emphasis there. And I know you've published books before Wild Everything. Were those trade publishers? Was that self-publishing? Was it a mix? So it was a mix. My publishing journey um, began with a memoir called The Virgin Asanas, and I did the whole New York agent um, runaround with that book and ultimately decided to self-publish my first book. But that opened the door for other publications and publishers. So my second book um, and third book, Wild Everything, which we're talking about today, is published through Whip and Stock Publishers out of Oregon. And you wrote Wild Everything during and just after a really difficult um, time period, personally and in the whole county. Do you want to take us back to um, 2017 and 18? Oh my goodness, what a wild ride. So... 2017 in my life was in some ways the happiest time and in some ways the, I don't even know if I have a word for it. <laughs> um, it's beyond sad. It was, it was existentially confusing. Um, I had just gotten married to my lovely husband in April of, of 2017 and we had just gotten a cute, adorable little rental together, and we were starting our budding life. And six months into our marriage, we lived in a canyon here in Santa Barbara, California, and a fire had started further south um, near LA. And, you know, we're watching the news reports, and it seemed far away, but also creeping into our backyard. 
I, you know, I had grown up on the East Coast, so wildfires were not in my repertoire. I was used to, you know, the occasional hurricane coming up through the East Coast, but natural disasters were just not something I was accustomed to. You know, we got thunderstorms. That was that was the big to do in New Jersey at that time. And so I remember watching the news and and telling my husband, like, it, it's coming closer. I feel like we might want to to do something. Or <laughs> I remember go- literally Googling, like, you know, how to evacuate because I thought that was something pending for us, even though the news was not necessarily talking about it yet. And sure enough, by the first week of December that year, um, a huge portion of our town, particularly in the hills and in Montecito, we our bags were packed and we were we were evacuated. And it was a very surreal time in the sense that like we we loaded our car and we had on face masks, kind of like we do today, except it was to protect from ash falling from the sky. And I remember we we left our house one night as the fires were were coming in and literally the whole sky was ablaze behind us. You, you couldn't see the mountains. The mountains were just a volcanic flame. And we had our cat in our back and our clothes in some bags and some hard drives with, you know, books we had written and pictures from our wedding. And I remember standing on top of the hill facing adjacent the mountains that were in flames and just watching our town burn it was it was something that i to this day i still haven't found proper words to describe um i signed up for twitter at that moment i <laughs> i never had a twitter account before but it was the only way to get you know up to date local information from people who actually had you know, cameras and drones to check if our house was still there. Um, you know, the news itself was doing their best, but there was there was no actual coverage of, you know, what was happening inside my living room and or if I even had a living room left. Um, and so we were staying with friends and it was it was just a few weeks of being glued to the you know, to our phones and trying to find any information on, you know, if our lives had burned down or if our, if our new lives were with us now and if we had to reorganize. It was a wild, wild time. And then in 2018, the second disaster came. It did. So, so a few weeks later, after the fires paused, you know, we we were really fortunate with the fires, my husband and I, um, in terms of our house. It came within a block and a half, but the firefighters were able to, you know, to stop that. And, um, you know, I have friends and no acquaintances that, that they were not that fortunate in our town. Um, but by, by January, many of us were ready for a new year and... We were going to start clean and and move forward. And gosh, was it January 6th or 7th? I don't remember the exact date. Maybe you do, Christina? Do you remember? Yeah, it started in the middle of the night. So it's it's always hard to imagine that that was actually morning. Yeah. It, started, <laughs> but it was around 2 in the morning when it started. I remember 
Jen, Jen and I are, are friends. We've known each other for more than five years and we are also neighbors. So we were both um, deeply affected by, by what happened. Um, but I, I was evacuated when the rain started. Were you, you, you guys were evacuated or at home? So when the rain started in January, we had just gotten back from from Christmas with our families. We decided to leave early and just get a little reprieve and leave Santa Barbara because we had run out of friendly options to couch surf at that point. And when we arrived back in January, we had just set up shop and and that night in the morning, you know, when when it happened, they had issued an evacuation warning the night before. And my husband, um, my husband did not want to leave, to be honest. He had had some evacuation fatigue and he was like, really, what's going to happen? Um, they're calling for a little bit of rain. I think we're going to be okay. And me being the more anxious one in the family said, no, we, we need to get out of here. Um I don't know what's going to happen, but we are heeding the evacuation. And I'm so grateful that we did because, you know, that morning the rains came and hit hit the, the mountains in a way that just caused catastrophic mudslides and, and deaths um, to a town that is normally known as a safe haven for, you know, for outdoor lovers and just... A haven of rest, and it became a giant mud bath. And I know at some point you had a great worry about the safety of your cat. I did. So, you know, my husband and I were in conversation, as I mentioned, of whether or not to evacuate. And it was a really big issue. Um, during the fires the month previously to evacuate with our animal because many people would take us but not the cat. Um, I never knew how many people were allergic to cats in town until I knocked on the doors and asked if I could stay with them. So um, my husband agreed to evacuate together, but he's like, let's just leave the cat. It's too much of an issue um, to like knock on doors and and be rejected because of the cat. We're only going to be out for one day, if anything. You know, it's going to rain, everything's going to be fine, and we're going to come back home tomorrow. So we made the, the decision together to, we're going to leave our cat, Ro, at the house. And, um, and we left, and we said, Ro, we will see you tomorrow. We gave her food and water, and we said, we'll be back in the morning. Um, the mudslide hit. Obviously, we could not come back in the morning. We were actually staying at an ER doc friend's house in town, and another ER doc who himself was evacuated there um, was with us, and he was he was working the, the night shift that night when people got brought in. Um, so I got my first news report from Cottage Hospital ER doc, which was, is our local hospital here. And, you know, I woke up that morning outside. It, it looked like it had rained a little bit, but nothing major. And I was like, okay, everything's fine. And I walked into the kitchen and the ER doc looked like, you know, a train had hit him and he just sat on the couch and started sobbing. And I said, what happened? He's like, you'll never believe it. And I sat there and listened to him and he told me how, you know, 
overnight and then into the morning hours, people were brought into the ER like nothing he'd ever seen. He said it was, you know, you had to like excavate people from the mud around them. Um, you know, Santa Barbara is a community where it's warm and we don't have a lot of hot baths for conditions like hypothermia. And they were overwhelmed with hypothermic conditions and, you know, had to brainstorm how to physically warm people up. Um, and he was just in shock and trauma. And and we turned on the news and slowly I saw that our town was now buried in mud. Um, and of course, my mind went immediately back to our cat. I was like, oh my gosh, we're not going home today. Oh my God, our cat is still in our house. Oh my God, do we still have a house? Um, how are we going to get Row? So I, as many people do in trauma, you went into activist mode. That's a lot of how I cope is what can I, what can I do to try to help fix? Um, so that was my, my coping mechanism at that point. So I was calling every person I knew, every shelter I knew, and it just became this rampage of we have to find our cat. And so that's how I spent that morning. And now our county is on its third disaster in three years. We've been shut down since March for COVID, and you are a teacher, and you are teaching remotely from home, and I am taping with you remotely, and we have not seen each other face-to-face since, I believe, early March. Um, Yeah, that would be right. Yeah. um, It's staggering in some ways to think this is our third disaster in three years. and it's amazing that during all this, you have continued to write, you have continued to teach, and you wrote this beautiful book of poetry, Wild Everything. At what point did you start writing the poems in Wild Everything? Um, great question. Um, before I answer that, I did just want to follow up The Cat Was Safe <laughs> and return to our arms my husband is a runner and he did a 21 mile round trip run through the um, blocked off hills and past police lines to personally rescue our cat. And when he got there, the cat was gone. So there was a few hours of, oh my goodness, what happened to the cat? And then the shelter actually called me later that day and the shelter had been given permission to go in and do animal rescue and the shelter had gotten there legally before my husband had gotten there on foot illegally. So we were able to pick up the cat later that afternoon. Um, just wanted to conclude that the, the feline was Yes, thank safe. you for telling us about Ro. I have a soft spot for Ro. <laughs> yes, Christina has babysat Ro in the real world, in the pre-pandemic world. So she she is a Ro lover, as are we. But back, backing up to your question, you know, poetry poetry is an interesting medium in the fact that for me, it's it's really meditative. I don't ever feel inspired in the morning. I need to go write a poem, but there are times in life where I feel the necessity to get quiet, and that normally happens when life gets overwhelming. And for me, the places I get quiet are places outside in the woods you know, on the beach, anywhere with fresh air really centers me. 
So from there, when I'm feeling that urge of overwhelm, I normally take myself and my journal and a camera and a pen and go outside and sit. And I think that's where the poems find me um, when I get quiet. It's, it's my own personal therapy to just begin to listen and sit. And then, you know, after the poems find you, I think they start to find each other kind of like magnets until a collection emerges like this one, Wild Everything. Um, my first poem, first poems in this book, I actually wrote on a educational trip to Peru. I teach at a private school here in Santa Barbara, and I was chaperoning a group of 14-year-olds, and we took them to explore the ruins and do some hikes um, in Cusco and in Ollantaytambo, Peru. And I had an afternoon where the kids were, they were with some um, ex- other camp counselors. So the teachers had a nice reprieve. And I went down by this river in Ollantaytambo and it was fall. And I knew I just needed a recenter and kind of a vision for that educational year and teaching for myself. And um, that's where one of the first poems came about. And what time period was that? So that was three three months before the wildfire and four months before the mudslides in Montecito. So the book began before the world as we all knew it, it, at least in our county, changed dramatically. And you kept writing afterwards. Um, did you have a period of pausing in your writing? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. So like I said, the, the first poems began that September in Peru. And it's an interesting timeline um, to look there. So my husband and I, we had just been married a few months and we were contemplating having a child at that time. And so I was really, you know, writing and scribbling about the idea of of life and and rebirth and and what it means to enter into a maternal role um, and just those cycles of life and so that began in September on that short Peru trip for me um, and as I said a few months later were the wildfires and the mudslides um, unbeknownst to us <laughs> um, we conceived a girl a, a few days before the mudslide. And so we found out when we were evacuated um, at a friend's house a few weeks after the mudslide that we were pregnant. Um, So in the midst of this extremely excruciating time for our town, I mean, we had set up pop-up schools all all over Santa Barbara. We were being told you know, if we still had homes, it would be a month before we could find out if they existed or six months before we could get back in. It, in this strange time, you know, I, I found out I was having a baby. And it, even though we, that was our intended goal, that, that did not seem like the intended month to, to know that information. Um, it seemed like the opposite of, of proper timing to me at that moment. Because, you know, for the fires, we had taken most of our possessions out of the house. Then we had put them back in. 
for for the fire or for the mudslide in January, we had just taken the clothes on our backs because we were returning to our cat the next day and returning to normal life. And so when I found out I was pregnant and, you know, literally had the shoes on my feet and the clothes on my back, I, it was really overwhelming to me. And the only way I could make sense of it was to keep writing because I was like, there has to be a bigger narrative going on here that I need to find because I'm going to lose it otherwise. Like, you know, I, in my psychology degree, we learn all about things like, you know, cortisol levels and, and, and prepartum health and, and stress and anxiety and how that affects, you know, the prenatal period and uh, this was the most stressed I'd ever been in my life. And I was so afraid for my future child that like, this was the moment she was choosing to come into the world. Like I didn't even know what world I had to offer her. Um, so, so writing kept me sane. I had to find some kind of, of answer. I had to connect the dots. Like why in the world would would God send me a child at this moment? Like I had, a, I had visions of pregnancy being, you know, that summer where I'm, you know, sipping tea by a pool on pillows, not <laughs> checking Twitter every moment to see if, you know, my house was still there. It was, it seemed too chaotic. It seemed, it seemed unfair to, to my child. And I was, I was a bit upset about it. <laughs> to be honest. (laughs) So writing helped pull me through that moment and, and refocus me. And it gave me a lifeline because I was no longer thinking about just my husband and I, I had to find my sanity for this unborn child inside of me because I didn't want her first moments in the world to be bathed in any more cortisol than than she deserved. And you say it kept you sane during those moments, but the the functional reality is that we had ongoing um, evacuations. We would get these alerts on our phone, letting us know if rain was in the forecast. Then they would let us know what the forecast was. Then they would let us know changes in the forecast, changes in the uh, expectation. And every one of them would say, be prepared. You know, every one of them would tell us to be prepared to evacuate. And we lived like that for a couple of years with those ongoing alerts on our phone that that be ready. And you're trying to make your body a calm temple for your baby to grow in. Yeah. So when I say it kept me sane, it, it kept me attempting to find sanity. Um, it was it was a crazy time. Um, my whole first trimester, I was in other people's houses or couches that I sometimes knew really well. And sometimes it was, you know, the grace of a stranger offering their place to us. Um, And then even when we did get back into our house and the mud came literally right up to our driveway, um, but our house was actually spared because we were slightly further down the canyon. Uh, Two of our neighbors completely lost their house. We had neighbors that lost lives. Um, it was, it was madness. It was total madness. And, you know, I was, 
I was pregnant, but I didn't want to tell anyone. And we had created this pop-up school. So I went from teaching at this beautiful campus to this windowless building downtown um, where we're trying to you know, bus in children because the highway was closed. So half of the kids were on different campuses spread out on all over Santa Barbara. And you're right. Our phone was constantly giving us alerts of warnings that it could all happen again. So we were in and out of other people's living rooms, in and out of hotels, fighting insurances, you know, fighting with our landlords. Um, I remember my first pregnancy appointment and she's like, you seem a little stressed. I'm like, well, <laughs> I haven't looked outside. <laughs> what a compliment. You seem a little stressed. Oh, it was, it was, it was wild. And then throw, throw pregnancy hormones on top of that. And I'm very sensitive to biochemical changes in my body. I like, there were days when I would get home from work where, you know, we would spend a lot of our time with the children's you know, teaching them disaster coping strategies and, um, or their parents. Um, we have a lot of families who live in Montecito who go to my school and, um, you know, we had kids at our school who lost everything. Um, we had a family at our school that literally floated down the mudslide on their bed mattress. Like, scenes from stories that you never want written or movies you only you know want to watch because they're sci-fi rather than real life um so it was all that i could do to just kind of get through the day and my my husband is so supportive and he was in the thick of it with me and you know we had never been pregnant before we we didn't know how to navigate this we this was our first year living together. Um, so all of our spare time was, like I said, fighting insurance and <laughs> finding where to stay at night and just keeping our head above water. So so the poems specifically about the mudslide experience, I think only one of them was actually written in the thick of it. The rest kind of came when life calmed down a couple months later that summer and I could actually sit and reflect. And I was then in my second trimester um, and find greater places of, of calm or meaning. But in that moment, that wasn't happening. Um, like I said, I was just grasping for any straw that I could to get through the day and, and get up in the morning. One of the things I was wondering is when you were in grad school for psychology, you undoubtedly studied concepts about resistance and resilience and um, denial. And I wonder the difference between when you learned it then and when, where you are now, um, what your thoughts are about what denial is, if it's a thing. My experience, having gone through it, is I think denial is not the right word for it. I don't think any of us actually thought we were at a fancy tea party. <laughs> I, I don't I don't think any of us thought we were at Disneyland. I think we all, as you so aptly said, were staring at our mountains on fire. And then we were functionally blocked from going anywhere because the major highway, which is one of the major highways for the state, 
had turned into a river of mud and boulders and was under many feet of water. And people were trapped uh, in their mobility. People were gravely injured. People died. I don't think any of us were saying this didn't happen. I think we needed a lot of time and space to process because it didn't make any sense. And so I wondered what your thoughts were about what what is meant by that term denial and also what your thoughts are about what resilience really is now that you've lived them. You've you've walked through that on multiple levels for on your own behalf and on behalf of your baby. Yeah, so that's a wonderful question. You know, I I think denial is a concept that, you know, shows up in patterns of family patterns, particularly around ideas of addiction or or patterns of addiction where it's a pretending a problem isn't there. In in a disaster, I think what actually happens is not denial, it's it's shock. And shock is a beautiful actually healing mechanism of the body that pre- prevents us from intaking too much information that would overwhelm our nervous system. And what shock does is it slows down time. It, it almost mutes the olfactory and our auditory senses, or they can actually heighten them, to, to be honest. But it, it creates a little bubble around us that lets us process just the next step until we can come up for air. And then it lets us compute that next traumatic detail until we can come up for air. Because if if our nervous system were to input, intake, and make meaning of of that level of trauma and loss at one time, it would it would physically cripple the system, you know, possibly into death or, or cardiac arrest. And so shock is a beautiful protective measure that our well-designed bodies have in place. It's not denial that it didn't happen. It is the beginning of processing what happened. It just needs space to move through that, you know. Um, having, that's part of the function that your poems did for you. That's part of a function my poems did for me. You know, it's interesting now being on the other end of being a mother and talking about shock and processing of information. You know, babies process, you know, three to eight times slower than than the adult brain does in terms of processing new information. That's why when you ask a child, you know, it's helpful to speak slower and to give them time to answer because their little brains are computing new words and new language and new symbols and new schemes. And I see it with my my child. And looking back on myself during the disaster, I think I felt a little bit like that child, like my processing just became slower so I could intake what I needed to and learn what I needed to for surviving that day. Um, There was no forecasting the future. It was just about living in that present moment. And that's where resilient really resilience begins, in my opinion. Like it has to come back to, to being present and being mindful with here and now, because we're not promised anything else. I mean, we're all living that right now with COVID. Like we, 
this whole pandemic has really shrunk all of our plans, <laughs> thrown our plans off the table and shrunk shrunk the world into just what's in front of us. And like, how do I make meaning of this day in quarantine? How do I process what this means for today? Because I can't figure out what it means tomorrow. I can't plan my next trip or, you know, figure out, you know, daycare situations for my child down the road. It's it's just here and now. But that's a gift because returning to that present moment builds those resiliency skills because it returns us to our body and our body knows how to breathe right now. Our body knows how to put our feet on the ground right now. Our body knows how to, you know, look around and, and orient, you know, Right now it's 10.56 a.m. on October 22nd, and I'm talking to Dr. Christina Gessler. And those small grounding moments begin our path of recovery, because if we are okay in this moment, we might be okay in the next moment. And then we can breathe a little bit easier and a little bit longer into the future, slowly, slowly, slowly. Is it helpful for resilience to have a sense of something bigger than yourself? My reading of Wild Everything, and I love the title is bold. It's not just wild, which would be a lovely title, uh, but it's Wild Everything. It's the totality of the wonder um, and the power of it. And I get the sense from reading it that you're one of the things that gets you through is this sense of something much bigger than yourself, and that is nature itself. A hundred percent. Um, like I said, I'm a person that finds meaning in, in bigger stories, because if it all just boils down to my story, I'm bored with that. <laughs> and um, I don't have all the answers. I don't have many of the answers. And so a comfort for me is knowing that, you know, there are stories bigger than myself. There are myths. There are archetypes. There are trees bigger than myself. I was up in Big Sur camping this weekend, and it was one of the first times I've I've gotten out and slept on the ground since all of these disasters. And it was so refreshing. We were in a redwood grove, and just looking up at these trees, just thinking, like, my God, you know, how many centuries have they been around? What what have they they seen people through? Like, what stories and prayers have they heard? Um, who has come? to this very spot and said, help, I don't know how I'm going to make it tomorrow. And and then they do. Uh, that's comforting to me. Um, I think that's comforting to the child within us to have someone or something bigger than ourselves. I know my spirituality has been really grounding for me, you know, thinking of a divine power bigger than myself that somehow still exists despite all the trauma. Um, those Those are lifelines for me. And it sounds like community is as well, that even though it may be hard to remember the names and faces of the people who took you in, because as you so aptly explained what shock does, it is hard to remember, where did I stay here? Whose couch was this? Who fed me? It still happened. And that community that comes up, whether it's a temporary pop-up community, whether it's ongoing community, whether it's community who reconnects when the school comes back together virtually, um, when friends 
like you and I haven't really had a real chance to talk in seven months, but here we are on the <laughs> podcast. It, those community connections sound like they have been a part of your resilience as well. Oh, I learned the power of neighbors in a much different way through these disasters than I ever have. Um, like I said, you know, I grew up kind of remotely in New Jersey where neighbors were not people you knocked on doors, like, you know, to borrow sugar or eggs. We were pretty remote. Um, and to be honest, living in the canyons where we did in Santa Barbara, even though we had neighbors, there wasn't a sense of community among them. And as soon as the fires hit and as soon as the mudslides hit, all of a sudden, you know, we were getting emails and phone calls from neighbors that we had never met and they were checking on us and we were checking on them. And, um, you know, we were bringing each other food and helping each other coordinate information and sharing photos of like, your house is okay. And it was, it was remarkable. Um, I read a book at that time by Sebastian Junger called Tribe. And I don't know if you've read that, Christina, no. Oh, it's wonderful. It talks about the the restorative power and of the restorative power of community in times of disaster and how you know, he surveyed people post-war and post-refugee camp and they actually looked back on some of those times with deep fondness and and missed those times of trauma because it broke down their independence. It showed them how they needed other people. And it was the first time they had found their tribe where they belonged and they, it didn't matter who had money and who didn't and who looked like what. It was, we are all in this together. We are all humans and, um, and we need each other. And I think that was a huge lesson for me in all of these disasters, in becoming pregnant it was, I can't do this on my own. And, and I don't even want to, and I don't even think it's healthy to attempt to. Community and tribe and, and other people became a totem for a lot of Santa Barbara and Montecito because we didn't have physical objects necessarily anymore. We just had each other. You quote several different poets in the book and I know you're an extremely well-read person. So this may be a painful question to ask. Do you have a favorite poet? I do. I do. And, um, you know, I wrote my master's thesis at Fordham on Mary Oliver. And so to do that, you had to pick a writer and devour all of their work. And I knew she was the one poet that I could eat up every syllable for and read every critical article on. So Mary Oliver is my heroine. I, unfortunately, she passed away in the last few years. But, you know, her deep um, owning of her life, her her faith, her sexuality, um, and that interlude she had with nature was just spectacular to me. It is spectacular to me. It, I agree. And part of why I preface is that it might be a painful question is I love so many books and so many poets and so many authors that when someone asks me to give just one name, I, <laughs> I, I, find, I find a pain of betrayal of the rest of the canon that I adore. But I, I'm thrilled that you picked Mary Oliver and you, you told us why. Um, 
Do you have a copy of the poetry book there in front of you? I do. I wonder if you could read us the poem from page 32 called Hidden. Sure. Okay, here we go. Hidden. Terrain that can't be mapped by compass or by crook. It's funny how life turns us round. We spend our days charting plans and paths, but end up where we fall, never fully grasping what light guides us, what motes float us, and how we are always home. Thank you for being here, Jen, and thank you for reading that beautiful poem of yours. Um, I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. We've been talking with Jennifer Strube about her beautiful new poetry book called Wild Everything. This is The Academic Life here on New Books Network. Please. Join us again.